So as we're going through the book of Jeremiah this semester, one of the things that struck me in preparation as I was reviewing my Jeremiah notes and kind of looking through, we're not going to teach every verse, right, in a semester on Jeremiah. It's the biggest book in the Bible uh, in terms of actual words. Uh, what are we going to do, right? What am I going to teach? And I was so struck, especially the section that we're in right now, that although Jeremiah is pre-modern, right? You got the pre-modern era, ancient era, the uh, modern era, and the post-modern era that we are segueing into right now, yet amazing similarities to the postmodern era. And so we're going to talk this morning about postmodern witness. We sense correctly, I believe, that we do live in a time of rapid change, uh, fragmentation, moral decay, cynicism, that there's a lot of change going on and things aren't the same and it, it looks like things are, you know, they get worse in terms of general morality and society and confusion. So let's compare that with Jeremiah's situation, and let me remind you, I haven't mentioned this in a couple weeks, when we look at Jeremiah 1 to 10, those first 10 chapters, it's sort of the Reader's Digest of Jeremiah's theology. So I just threw together on the PowerPoint some quick summaries here of what he really teaches in those first 10 chapters. Judah has forsaken God, which is going to lead to judgment, right? That's one of the big messages of Jeremiah. Secondly, he focuses on why it is that outwardly religious people like they were, they weren't like their northern Israel neighbors, they were outwardly religious, they did temple offerings, they did all of the rituals, why these outwardly religious people had yet forsaken God. And one of the things he identified was the cynicism. They went through the rituals, but they really didn't think God would bring judgment their hearts were hardened, and they had a couple of spiritual infections, I'd call them. They're related, but they're not identical. One is the, some astrological thinking, which we'll see today in chapter 10, kind of believing in that the stars kind of guide destiny. And then along with that, a paganism that, you know, the stars are guiding destiny, but if the stars are taking you the wrong way, uh, maybe we can make an offering and make the gods happy, right? And manipulate and change direction through, uh, through an offering or some kind of ritual. And so they were looking at these sacrifices that Moses had ordained as sort of a pagan way of manipulating reality, right? I've said this before, but in case you haven't heard or remembered that, in my view, the, the essence of paganism is the idea that you can do something to manipulate a deity, right? That you can somehow, an offering or a way of praying, that you can somehow guarantee results. And so they had fallen into these infections, and then worse than that, the spiritual leaders themselves were infected with these diseases. They're infused with this thinking, and they're leading the nation toward destruction. And so the result is that deception and deceit have become normal. Moral confusion, alienation, and devastation. When, when you cannot trust what people say, how do you have relationship? Do you sense that in our society? You can be politically left or politically right, but there's a cynicism about how can you even have a societal conversation if you think that everything is just manipulation and power moves. You don't really trust that there's sincerity behind the discussion. And so alienation and moral confusion results. And then finally, the phrase is from Hosea, but 
Jeremiah has the concept, when things are that bad, God destroys in order to heal. And so in their society, and, and there's, we have to be careful in our comparisons here, there's our society and there's their society, but probably the better way to look at it is Jude is supposed to be the people of God of their day. And so really the comparison is not our society and their society, it's the church and what we might call the Old Testament church, the people that were supposed to be the believers of their day. And when those who are supposed to be the believers, the agents of truth and healing for the world, when they have become co-opted, God destroys to heal. So in the midst of this then, today we'll look at how does Jeremiah respond to this? So just to remind you what we've said, read chapter nine, verse 24, and then we'll dive into chapter 10. But the big picture here, chapter nine, verse 24, let him who exalts or boasts, your translation may say, but the idea is get excited, right? Not boast in the negative sense. Let him who exalts, exult about this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So all the things you can know, he says, delight and boast in that you know me rather than your wisdom, your power, or your wealth. And so, so also, we need to know God. And so what we learn in chapter 10 in terms of postmodern witness is what does it mean to know God? So several qualities of those who know God. The first quality of those who know God is the ability to recognize him, recognize what's of God and what is not. So read chapter 10, verses one to seven, and we'll dive in. Hear what the Lord says to you, O house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the sky, though the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nail so it will not totter. But like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols can't speak. They got to be carried because they can't walk. Don't fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not revere you, O king of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. Let's pray. Lord, open our souls, and perhaps this morning it will not so much be information as strength of conviction, around things that perhaps we already know, but to carry them in our souls with confidence and anointing, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as I mentioned, chapter 10, verse two is about astrological signs, fortune-telling by the stars and horoscopes. And you know, you can kind of get mixed up in this stuff. I remember uh, I was a little, what we call then a Jesus freak in seventh grade, uh, 1969, you know? And so I had my, uh, there had this really, really thick black Bible. It was called the Douay Reims. It's sort of the Catholic version of uh, the King James, you know. And uh, so I had this huge Bible. I carried it around, right, and had a, and a piece of bark. I was a kind of a nature man, right, so a piece of bark for my bookmark. But I also would make sure I, every day when we got the paper that I'd read the horoscopes, right? 
yeah, you know, a good little religious seventh grader, right? And that, you know, is sort of like the Israelites, like, yeah, well, we believe in God, and, you know, there's other things, too. We want to guarantee results, right? We want to make sure you don't want to miss anything, any opportunity, and uh, that's where they were at. Uh, they wanted to read the will of the gods in the sky, and then, like I said, if the results were not favorable, then they'd use these rituals to try to change the destiny of the stars. And if you've read, we just read verses 3 to 5, if you've read Isaiah 44, Isaiah gets even more sarcastic, right? He goes on and on about, you know, going to warm myself with the wood, I'm going to cook my food, and then I'm going to make a god out of the rest of it, right? And he's being very sarcastic, and Jeremiah is picking up on this using the scarecrow picture, right? So they have an idol like a scarecrow, you know, and they dress it up, you know, real cute, uh, but there's no power there. They cannot speak. The contrast, of course, verses 6 and 7, no one is like God. Well, how does this help us? I mean, people don't bow down to idols for the most part anymore. I mean, I did have some neighbors in northeast Minneapolis that they were uh, devout animist Buddhists uh, from Vietnam, so they did have the little candles before the ancestors. And they, you know, so some people that still have some of that bowing down, but most people not, right? So how do we relate to this? I want us to think about it a little bit. Although people do not bow to idols anymore, the essential issue is people still trust in powers that they believe they can control. So the naturalist, the person that says there's either no God or no significant God, the naturalist, they believe they can control the world through knowledge, knowledge and mastery of technology, right? Now, interestingly enough, that group, although all of us are naturalists in a sense, right? We all believe in the, that, you know, we master of nature, not naturalists and not believing in God, but we all kind of believe in science, right? That's the big, big faith. Uh, but... Uh, the number of people that believe only in science, it, only in nature, is actually diminishing in the United States right now. Percentage-wise, there were more when the country was founded than there are today. In spite of the loud voices of the Dawkins and others, actually in the United States, the people that are pure atheists are very rare. The growing group is the non-Christian supernaturalists who, you know, they believe in science, but they believe in, you know, you can kind of control forces, or maybe they call them spirits. You usually call them forces. That seems a little less scary. And uh, maybe they put together a little Christianity and a little Buddhism and a little of this, right? Kind of do-it-yourself spirituality, right? You have friends like this, you know what I'm talking about? At work, yeah. They're very, very common now. So they're not naturalists, they're supernaturalists. The observation I think we can make is that if you can control it, it doesn't transcend you. Those who know God should have discernment. God is above us. Our meaning and significance require a source above us. Otherwise, we're just sort of trying to pull ourselves up out of the ooze. Greater wisdom and perspective than ourselves is required. So I think the first thing to get from Jeremiah here is that like, like Jeremiah says, as simple as it is, only God is great. Only God. The uniqueness of the one true God. So the first quality of those who know God is we recognize him. We're not confused. We're not getting our thinking muddled. But another quality of those who know God is we proclaim that God. So look at verses 8 to 16. 
They are all senseless and foolish. They're taught by worthless wooden idols. Talking about the Babylonians. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish, gold from Uphaz. What the craftsmen and goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. They've got the best people working here. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Before I read verse 11, I just want to point out, it is the only Aramaic verse in all of Jeremiah. The language of the Babylonians. Here it is. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under heavens. Making sure they know. But God made the earth by his power, back in verse 12. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain, brings out the wind from his storehouses. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They're worthless. The object of mockery, when their judgment comes, they'll perish. He was a portion, he was the portion, or the inheritance of Jacob, is not like these. He's the maker of all things, including Israel, the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord Almighty is his name. Those that have read a little Old Testament, gotten used to it, you may notice that there's a little bit of a chiasmus here, and the main topic is in the middle, in verse 11. <clears throat> so, again, verses 8 and 9, more sarcasm. They take their idols of wood and gold, and they dress them up in the best cloth. <clears throat> by well-skilled people. God is different. Look at verse 10. He's the living God, the true God, the eternal king. He's the true God. He's alive. He's got wrath against folly. And then the big announcement in verse 11. Tell them this. These gods who do not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It's the only verse in Aramaic in all of Jeremiah. Why? Jeremiah is doing evangelism. If you ever read your Bible carefully, when you're reading the book of Daniel, you'll see the same thing. Daniel chapter 2, right in verse 4, it switches all the way through the end of chapter 7. They switch from Hebrew to Aramaic. Why? It's the language of the Babylonians. You see, Daniel and in a small way Jeremiah are doing what Jonah refused to do, which is bring the message to the nations. Bring the message of the one true God. A little biblical theology real quick here. So as you're starting to read the Old Testament, if you do it in roughly historical order, you'll notice they talk about the gods of the nations and they kind of mention them and you're not really sure if they believe in them or not, you know, but, they, but the, Yahweh's the true God, okay, we get it. But by the time you get to Isaiah... He's, like, he's very, very clear. There's a progress in Revelation, we call it, progressive Revelation. And in chapter 45, Isaiah concludes, there really is no other God, other gods. There's only one. And so that's why he says in the end of chapter 45 that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. In other words, Isaiah, in the middle of his book, realizes that if, in fact, as is the case, that there really is only one God, then the people who know him need to tell all the nations so they can all be saved, right? They can't rely on Marduk. He's not really a god. And so Jeremiah, coming a little while later, is building on this saying, this is true. So 
He wants to make sure the Babylonians know, so he puts it in their language. Hey, your gods aren't going to make it, right? They're dying. Does he mean their demons are going to be destroyed? Or probably he means, you know, this way of seeing the world is dying out. You're going to realize this is not true. And so, you know, don't trust in these gods that are going to fail you. Your gods are too small and they're dying. Your gods are not the creator. Your gods will perish. Well, again, how does this help us today? I think it suggests a strategy. I alluded to it before, but now we'll make it clear. Say you have someone who is a strong believer in their naturalism or their existentialism or kind of a vague assembly of your own spirituality. What, what do they often say when you share something that God's done? What do people say? Oh, that's, good. that's good, right? That's good. There's two more words they say. For you, yes, that's good for you, right? Right, of course, because we're all very accepting, and you know what I mean. Nobody's, you know, believes in absolute. So yeah, it's good for you. I mean, I'm so glad for you. That's so cool that you, you know, gained emotional healing and security through this God of you. That's great. Yeah, right. So what I think is being suggested here is that with gentleness and love. We need to ask, are your beliefs producing the hope and the life and the joy that you need? Now, be careful. I, I, uh, a friend of mine thought she went through a spiritual revelation recently and like, wow, you know, personal, being personally holy doesn't matter. I'm just going to, you know, care about going out and sharing the message. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> I think they go together, <laughs> right? So, so when you share truth, it, it has to be, when you, when you challenge someone's worldview, if you don't do it with love and tears in your eyes, it's going to have a bad result. And again, one of the things we learn from Jeremiah is judgment never comes with a rigid finger. It's always with tears in his eyes. But I think he's suggesting here that we need to say to our peers as well, your gods are dying. The things you're trusting in aren't going to make it. They're not going to last. And so we need to, with sensitivity and love, ask, help them see their gods are dying. Of course, naturalism, as I mentioned, as a total worldview, is shrinking in Western civilization because if I don't survive death, uh, in any sense, I'm unsure what my life means, right? Like, that doesn't seem very satisfying. So most people uh, in Western civilization, especially the U.S., believe in some kind of significance or afterlife or, you know, people investing in the future, trying to find their significance. But when truth perishes, so does significance. You know, maybe we need to get better at the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, if you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, he believes in God, like the people in our country do, most of them. Believes in some kind of afterlife, but he's not really sure what it's like. And so he's like, I just know it's probably right to do the right thing, but if the you know, those who die, whether if the evil get to go to the same place as the good, then, then what's meaningful? And that's why he's asking that question. See, that's what I mean about there's a progress in Revelation. The book of Ecclesiastes is not clear about heaven and hell and that kind of thing yet. Not quite there. And so, so he raises the right question. Well, I suggest that we get a little bit immersed in that book, not to that you believe what he believes. He needs a little more. He needs the New Testament, right? But that you understand that that's where a lot of people are at. Right? That if we're not sure what happens... After death, then I'm, 
I, I have an instinct I should probably be a good person, right? Why be a murderer? But, you know, but I'm kind of wondering why, right? Why, why what, I do, what I do matters, right? So I want you to think about, this is not three steps to better evangelism. This is, I want you to think about, have you, have you sensed the challenge in sharing Christ in these days sometimes? Yeah. And so I'm trying to help us think through what the Bible says and so again, it's their context. We don't literally believe most of us, in, you know, the, or most of our friends in polytheism, but the message, your gods are dying, can be adapted and help people to see. Yeah, this is, this is you need to know that what you're trusting in is not going to produce eternal life. So the second quality of those who know God is we proclaim the true God. You know, by the way, we proclaim the true God. You don't have to prove that God exists, we're, all, we're just asked to proclaim and let the seed of the word, let the truth soak and do its work. We can show that it makes sense of the world and, and make that belief is rational, not irrational. But then the third quality of those who know God is witnessing by our lives that we, we submit to the true God. So after all of this discussion... Jeremiah says some very uh, significant things. We're going to kind of skip. The, in 17 to 22, it's a discussion of the destruction of Jer uh, Jerusalem. And uh, this chapter, although in chapter 10, they're not in chronological order, maybe shortly before Jerusalem is destroyed. And so it's a terrible time. Um, now maybe we should read it. Let's just look at verse 17. Gather up your belongings to leave the land, you who live under siege. So it's like they're, the city's surrounded. They're about to go to Babylon. For at this time... This is what the Lord says. At this time, I'll hurl out those who live in this land. I'll bring distress on them. They may be captured. So this is right at the door. It's about to happen. Woe to me because of my injury. My wound is incurable. Yet I said to myself, this is my sickness. I must endure it. Right? So all these things are falling apart and being destroyed. And you can read, read through chapter, uh, verse 22 that it's going to be a desolated city. Right? So they're going to be exiled. They're, uh, they know there's no simple fix. The children are going to be lost. Their leaders don't seek God. Judah's going to be desolate. Well, this raises the big question. I don't know, you know, necessarily that something like this was going to happen in our society. Could, you know. But when there's devastation, you know, Jeremiah was following God. But when judgment came on Judah, he had to live through it too. You know, when, when God brings discipline to a society, the believing remnant walks through it too. So how do we walk through it is our last question this morning. And so Jeremiah tells us in verses 23 to 25. These are the verses I really landed on this week personally. I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It's not for man, man generic, man, woman, to direct his steps. Correct me, Lord, but only with justice, not in your anger, lest you reduce me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the peoples who do not call on your name, for they devoured Jacob. They've devoured him completely and destroyed his homeland. So what does he do? Verse 23. I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It's not for a man to direct his steps, literally to, to walk to direct his steps, 
a man's life. The idea is here, you don't determine the times you live in. Any of you read time travel fiction? Am I the only one? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah, right? And, you know, I don't know if you play with this in your imagination, but I imagine, you know, what would it be like if, you know, Kathy and I were in the 1800s in the Old West, and what would our life look like? Then? You know, I write these whole novels in my head as I'm falling asleep, but, you know, they never get published because I fall asleep, but, you know, it's uh, whatever. Okay, so maybe that's not your thing, but, but I do think about this, that sometimes we feel like, oh, gosh, things are, oh, my, why am, oh, you know, what am I going to do about being here, and what, what am I? God placed you here. In this city, at this time, in this society, at this time. We don't determine our times. There's a humility in verse 23, isn't there? You don't even determine your gifts, your abilities, right? It's God is the one who's placed you. Little New Testament, John 15, 16 says, you do not, Jesus says, you do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. That word appoint is placed you. Tithemi. I placed you in Minneapolis public schools. You know, whatever. <laughs> Lord, you know, yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> you know, I placed you in a network of relationships to go and bear fruit. It's not for a man to determine his way, direct his steps. So then even though he's following the Lord, he says, correct me, verse 24, chastise, Lord, but only with your justice, not in your anger, lest you reduce me to nothing. He humbly asks for correction and a devoted heart. When society feels chaotic, we can tend to compare ourselves and feel a little more spiritual. Jeremiah is saying, do what you need to do in me, Lord. Discipline me, but not in wrath. I I can't handle your wrath, but Correct me. Tune me in. Help me to carry your heart. And then he does say, God, ultimately, that you would punish those who refuse to know God. So what do we learn here? There is a surrender of control in the life of discipleship. I can't determine my steps. I can't determine where I am in my society. God's placed me. I can determine what I'll do. And so that second step, Lord, correct me, position me, even as I yearn for your justice. So the third quality of knowing God is submission. So Jeremiah is really equipping us. He's equipping his people. Remember again the context of Jeremiah. You you read Jeremiah and you're hearing what he's saying to the people at the time. But they collected all of his sayings. Why? Why? Because the people sitting in exile reading Jeremiah didn't want to repeat the error. So like, like the people sitting in exile reading Jeremiah, we can read and say, okay, I know what to do based on their experience. And so he's saying, how do you point to God in the middle of chaos and multiple worldviews and things are scrambled all over the place and maybe it won't be in exile, but you know, there's all this stuff happening. How do you point to God in the middle of all that? He says, first of all, you be clear who God is. Don't buy into the superstitions of your time. Don't buy into the deception. You know, we believe in science, right? We're, we're moderns or postmoderns, right? But don't 
by the deception that science answers it all. Because again, like, uh, like their paganism, science can only go as high as we go because it's us thinking, right? To find meaning beyond that, you have got to go higher. So don't be deceived. I'm not saying don't believe in science. You know, we're, I believe in science. I taught science, right? Physics, chemistry, math, whatever, yeah. But, but understand what it cannot give. Be clear on that in your own thinking, first of all. Secondly, then proclaim that. Help people see that they need meaning beyond what they can touch and see. That what we're offering them is not a bunch of rules, although there are some rules, there's some guidance, but we're offering them a glimpse of eternity. And not just someday, a glimpse of meaning now because my life is lined up with eternity, right? John says it. He says, if you believe, you have eternal life starting right now, right? Because you're tied into what's going to matter forever, but then the third thing Jeremiah teaches us is that if we're going to do that, then we have to have our life line up with that eternity. And that will involve humility, correction, a life of obedience that backs up our words. You might be thinking, well, I knew all that before I came this morning. <laughs> it's true. Jeremiah is really reminding us of what we already know here. But it's an encouragement Here's how it helps us, though. You can feel, maybe you, not you, but me, you can feel, I can feel, once in a while, what do I do in all this time of change? What is it, what really matters? And Jeremiah reminds me of what matters. Here's what matters. Know God. Proclaim God. Obey God. Stand with me. Let's pray. Hallelujah. So, Father, we stand here this morning. Really, I know many, many, many of us yearning, yearning to continue to share the life that we have. We sense that when we open up the mic, there's people sharing like crazy, just yearning to see friends and peers, to see who you really are and to experience that. So, Father, we cry out to you, Lord. Continue to help us to love and to share and to bring reality in a way that will help people, whether we're doing that just with words, actions, uh, artistic expression, stories you may write, all these different things, we seek to make your reality known. Holy Spirit, we're just asking you, give us insight into your word and our culture that we know how to intersect the people around us with love, grace, truth, power, Father, I pray for anointing on every one of us, oh God, to love, to share, to bring a message from beyond, to intersect prosaic lives, Lord. Just one question this morning I think is appropriate. There's somebody on your heart right now and you're just yearning to somehow share Christ with them. Just raise your hand. We're going to agree together that God opens the door. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Each of us has people in mind right now, friends, relatives, co-workers, classmates. In Jesus' name, we ask that you would open the doors for a naturally supernatural conversation that would be filled with grace and truth, that would lift up and strengthen, that would just... Be the, bring the fragrance of Christ 
into this situation, Lord. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.